0: Welcome back to the Bill Bradley Collective. In today's episode, we're going to take a look back at season two and highlight some of the best and brightest moments. We take a look back at Zach's opinion on John Bolton, who's currently butting heads with POTUS, and Kelly Loeffler, who has popped up in almost every episode this season, so it's only fitting that she is remembered here. And one of the most interesting rants this season was the story of Hao Tong Li, a Chinese golf enigma. And finally, a topic that drives through the idea of this very podcast the sportsification of news media. So let's get right in. First up, the boys are coming up off a conversation about the return and hope of college football.
1: Please, Wednesday night, maxion on ESPN2? I'm all in, man. Come on. Um, so as Ed says uh, in the intro, we, um, we're coming to you live uh, Saturday evening versus early in the day. Um, if I wasn't, and it's my own fault that we're here later in the day. If I wasn't here with these gentlemen at this moment, I'd be home parked in front of the couch watching golf's first major of the season, the 2020 PGA Championship held in San Francisco, which is it's kind of – that's a little ironic in its own way. Um, beautiful Harding Park, TPC Harding Park. It's a Muni course. So as a guy who plays at a Muni regularly, uh, shout-out to Muni Municipal Golf Courses, town-owned, um, pub- publicly run. Your leader at the halfway through two rounds is one Hao Tong Lee. And I'm sure there's nobody amongst you listening that's that knows who the fuck how Tong Li is. Um, I could tell you this. He's twenty-five. He's from China, does not have like a base in the US. A lot of international players of like high regard will um set up shop either in like Florida or California, or Arizona seasonally. Lee does not. He doesn't uh there's does, does not speak really a lick of English. Um this guy's pretty fucking cool. And if you're a guy who likes athletes that are into these sort of... If you like guys that are... Athletes that are quirky, how Tong Lee is right up your alley? I mean, here he is, golf's first major, two-shot lead. And we've... I was very... I think we all were very critical. We we talked about the PGA Tour's restart back in the end of May and how very early in there, what they tried to do was not really a bubble. They tried to do a bubble, a weekly bubble in a different town, and the early returns were not good. The last two months have been... There's been no tests really since, I believe the middle of June, positive tests. It seems to be working, and here we are. I mean, I'm thirsty for some major championship golf. and how Tong Lee, though, your leader at the halfway point. This is a guy who pros they'll and all their shit is like custom-made. All their clubs are custom custom-made, custom fit, custom designed, um, especially like their wedges are generally like handcrafted. Hao Tong and a lot of them, a lot of players will put um, just like uh, words, markings on their wedges of like superstition or whatever. and Hao Tong Lee carried a wedge in his bag that read Hao Tong is the most handsome man in China for a prolonged stretch of his career. Hao <laughs> Tong Li has played mostly on the European tour. He's won twice um, at a young. young age, at the 2017 French Open, which is a fairly you know fairly well-regarded, high caliber European tour event. He broke a club, and he be discarded. He threw it into a, a pond on the hole. Uh, his mother, who was in the gallery, who was not aware that the club was actually destroyed and of no no further use to Hao Tong, um, she decided to jump in said pond and retrieve said broken club. Um, <laughs> Hao Tong was really at the peak of his powers back in December, pre pre shortly before COVID. At the President's Cup, um, which I think I tried to force you guys to talk to me about. I think I'm, like, one of, like, the only people that gives a shit about this event. But international players versus U.S. players, yada, yada, yada. He's He comes in. Like, he's playing well. And um, Ernie Els, he sits him in, like, team play the first two days of the competition, which is rare for a guy to sit for, like, two days. And he finally plays him. And in his first match, in the first few holes, he's in a, in a two-on-two, like a like a four-foursomes four match. Uh, hits a ball out of turn. They end up getting DQ'd on the whole. At the closing ceremonies, after the international team loses, Ernie Els, the team captain, uh, golfing legend, is giving a pretty emotional speech about what the event means to him and what an honor it was to be a captain. And you can see right behind Ernie Els is How Tong Lee, not listening, just with his head buried in his cell phone. At the same competition, How Tong Lee decides to uh, get into a you know a bit of a beef with Ernie Els's college age daughter, scholarship rugby player at Stanford. She bragged to him that she could squat more than he could. What did he do? He set out to prove her wrong, and videos surfaced of him in the weight room. And if you ever, if you're gonna tune on the PGA tonight, you see Tong Lee, and it's a beautiful golf swing. Reminds me of like Dustin Johnson. It's long, it's slow, it's nice. This motherfucker, you, Zach, you, me, Ed, probably, we could squat more than this fucking guy. <laughs> like I mean, he's you know, he's a fucking ten Um, but. Yeah, it's fun. Everybody, You come into this week, and it's there's all the hype about the, the usual suspects, you know, the Americans. Justin Thomas's who just won last week. Dustin Johnson. Bryson DeChambeau. Big, bulky boy. The names that, like, the non-golf fans... I don't know if there's any golf fans that listen to this, but the non-golf fans that know the periphery. Those guys are all right there. They're all charging hard. Tigers kind of faded, but there's a lot of big names, big guns, major winners chasing Hao Tong Lee, And I, for one... I'm pretty uh pumped to uh see how he does this weekend and maybe see if uh he can hold on to this two shot lead.
2: I like anyone that makes any sport fun. And uh like we were talking a little bit uh about this earlier when you said, you know, uh there was a hole where everyone was gonna tee off with an iron and everyone did, and then he just walks up with a driver <laughs> and whacks the ball. Just they just fell asleep and, in the fucking team room. <laughs> you know, it's like it's one of those things like golf is a very dry and, and somewhat boring. Uh, sport, sure. You know, pe- people who watch it are tend to be golfers who love it. Anyone that makes it, like, the least bit interesting for seven minutes should win a, should win a major. Yeah. Good for him.
3: It's a John Daly thing. It's what the PGA yeah. Tour does. It, it takes characters and makes them golfers. So I have to ask you, Andrew, this is something that I've often thought. First of all, Hong Tong Li is the most handsome man in China. <laughs> How much of the club did that take up? I know that, like, the best computer, like, the best typists in China used to only be able to type, like, nine words a minute.
1: It's the entire, it's so you have, like, the face of the club on the other side, like the cavity. The entire cavity just reads how Tong is the most
3: handsome <laughs> in China. I think that everybody <laughs> everybody should have to play with the same clubs because that would actually make it, and the same ball, that would make it actual competition. They They will never do it because... There's so much sponsorship money available. But that would, in terms of a competition, that would be
2: the way to do it. Just for clarity's sake, you're not saying that, like, they all share one club, and they hit it, and then they go get the ball and mark it and run it back and then hit that ball and run and grab it. Uh, not in these COVID times, no. <laughs> Maybe eventually. <laughs> Everybody
3: plays one round of golf. with. Yeah. No, I mean, but everyone should have to use the same exact equipment. How much fun would that be? You'd actually find out at some level. Yeah. It's, it's a great point, and it's a, it's been a, a hot
1: topic in the golf community. Uh, this guy, DeChambeau, you know, he decided to just spend his quarantine getting bulked up, and now he's sitting at forty yards further than everybody else. And everybody else is sitting it further than everybody else before them. The answer is the answer is you can let the um, like Nike and Adidas and Armour can compete for like sneakers, but it's 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 on the the impetus is on the golf sort of administration the USGA. They're like they need to dial back the ball. The technology needs to be more restrictive. These companies they need to dial the ball back. They need to dial the clubs back. These guys cannot be hitting the ball as far as they can. Because these golf courses are getting run over, and that leads to people wasting money and resources into lengthening golf courses, and that's just a fucking mess. Well,
3: I think everyone should do, everyone should act the way Augusta acted when a black person won. <laughs> just keep changing the course every goddamn time, so Maybe. that it, so that it would stop.
1: And now they can't. Uh, last a last note on how uh, Tong Lee. So his one of his chief sponsors is WeChat. I don't know if you know what WeChat is, I um, do. but, but yep. WeChat is one of two social media apps based in China, the other being TikTok, that is the new target, new target of condemnation for our reigning, our, our commander-in-chief, President Donald J. Trump.
0: And here's a segment that needs no introduction.
3: So I'm going to begin by talking about Kelly Leffler, the junior senator from Georgia, who was appointed in December of 2019 uh, by Brian Kemp in what had to be the single dumbest press conference ever held. Well, that's not fair because the coronavirus updates by Trump. But other than that, that's an entirely different level of performance art. Kelly Leffler was appointed in, in December of 2019 and has managed in just five months to become one of the worst senators in U.S. history. Her husband is... Jeff Sprecker, I think you pronounce is how you pronounce his name, who is the chairman of the New York Stock Exchange and a big Republican donor, all of which I'm sure is incidental. Kelly is the wealthiest legislator in the US Senate. She is worth five hundred million dollars. I'm sure Mitch McConnell can catch her if you he if you give him one more term. And she had a interview on fox news the other day now during the dumbest press conference not held by trump she said that she is a strong supporter of the second amendment and looks forward to working with the nra but on fox news on thursday she had an interview where she decried the mob rule because long guns were being held by people in the pictures and that she said that she has always been a supporter of, uh, of the rule of law and Every single picture of this mob of long gun owners were people of color. They were all black men who were holding the guns. This is after white men have carried AK-47s all over the place, much to the cheering of the NRA and, and Ms. Leffler. This isn't a dog whistle. This is inviting the dog into your lap and then begging people to come over and pet it. She is the co-owner of the Atlanta Dream. And that team is comprised mostly of women of color. And I think if we've learned one thing over the past few months is don't fuck with WNBA players because they believe in social justice. And it's going to be interesting to see how many of her players are going to be willing to go for $60,000 or $54,000, like what the average WNBA salary is, and support her – As she is demonizing black men for the same exact reason she celebrates white men, because they own guns. She first came to national attention because after being briefed on COVID-19, she immediately sold a whole bunch of stock and bought, I believe, stock in Zoom. I think that's what it was, which was, you know, of course, just terrible, and then defended it not by denying that there was a connection, but by saying, what am I supposed to do, go broke? She said, I, act, I had to protect my portfolio as opposed to protecting her own citizens. That wasn't the worst thing she did. This was much worse. This was horrifying racism, and I hope the WNBA, the members of the uh, the Atlanta Dream, or the players playing against the Atlanta Dream, stick
2: it to her. What am I supposed to do, go broke? <laughs> You're worth $500 million. You can stand to lose a little like you'd be fine and you know it just reminds me like when reagan was governor you know saint reagan of the republican party and conservative movement uh when he was governor he passed a pretty strict gun control law and the reason why he passed it was because uh a lot of black men started carrying guns around the capitol because it was legal the black panthers did yeah the black panthers said we can protect ourselves on the capitol grounds and then ronald reagan said oh this isn't good and then took Guns away from people, so all these people that support the Second Amendment just remember that because they support the Second for white people, and they don't really support the First as long as it's black people peacefully assembling. But it's just you know Kelly Slothler is is you know look at the governor of Georgia, look at the senators from Georgia. Just, just what what are we what are we supposed to do in that in that situation of her as a part owner of a
1: WNBA franchise? That's that's like untenable. Like I don't I don't see. You referred to uh, the players. I this is going to be this is going to be something to to watch in the coming months because something's got to give there because uh, I don't see these WNBA players putting up with that.
3: And I want to be clear: I'm not celebrating black men carrying AK-47s, but I also don't celebrate white men carrying AK-47s. I don't have two standards. Her standard is white people should own as many guns as they want, and black people shouldn't because then they create mobs. So. Kelly Loeffler, I hope you go broke on the Atlanta dream.
0: Unlike Kelly Loeffler, Zach doesn't make any money off of these sponsors, so we're not going to play any. Something happened yesterday
2: that I was irritated about about a week ago, and I was still irritated yesterday, and I was even more irritated today. And it's that uh, longtime uh, monstrous villain and former national security advisor, John Bolton, uh, wrote a book, and it details the Trump uh, his experience in the Trump administration. Surprise, surprise, Trump is exactly who he thought he was. I'm not going to give you the name of the book because fuck John Bolton. Trump tried to get this book blocked because he claimed both it was lies and it was classified, uh, which makes no sense because if it's classified, then it's true, and if it's lies, then it's not classified. And a judge just ruled uh, against Donald Trump, uh, even though he claimed victory, uh, and said the book can be released. Now, this book does nothing details you know everything we know about Donald Trump oh it says the things we knew about Ukraine you know are true okay thanks John Bolton you know when that would have been important when he was asked to voluntarily testify during the impeachment trials where he did not show up that's where this information would have been useful when the spotlight on it not when you can make a couple million dollars on a book and I think about this a lot and especially in the Trump administration we've seen this happen But it is something that happened in politics where these people get involved and they do these awful things. So they get involved in in politics and it's basically a means to a book or a Fox News contributor spot or an MSNBC contributor spot. And at a time when we're seeing like massive uh, movement by, by youth and young people in this country, is there anything that brings more cynicism? than watching this monster make millions of dollars by basically hiding everything he knew about Donald Trump until he could write a book. Uh, it just, it's, it's, it's the worst of politics, and it's why cynicism sometimes is warranted. And it's just, of course, it comes from John Bolton, who has never met a Muslim he didn't want to bomb and has never met a country he didn't want to invade.
1: It's, it's almost one of the great successes of of the Trump regime being this ability to take some of the most kind of vile enemies of progressive politics of the last like half century and turn them into not sympathetic figures but you know the Steve Schmitz of the world the David Frooms of the world the you know these guys that somehow are less morally bankrupt than Trump and therefore they look um but there's also like you know and it's the, the opportunism too of these people um at
3: least David From and Steve uh, Schmidt and Rick Wilson came to reject Trump based on their own values, I do think it is it is a mistake, and it's a mistake the left often makes, that unless you are on the corner from the start, you don't get to join them on the corner. And I think that's just terrible. Bolton's a different case. First of all, Bolton has always struck me based on his demeanor, his mustache, and kind of his, his general personality as bizarro Ned Flanders. <laughs> <Right? Yeah. laughs>
0: Like, <laughs> Oakley, Dokley, here comes the United States.
3: <laughs> Everything that Ned Flanders is, he's the exact opposite, but they're, they're combined, held together by the same mustache. Yeah, the book, the book should be entitled, I'll be hopping on a book entitled Steal This Book, and that should be the title of it. I mean, if I read it, I would shoplift it because there's just no way in hell I'm giving this guy a dollar. The positive thing is he may have to forfeit all money because it did not go through the process correctly. And, and by the way, the process in the Trump administration of declassifying information, they just don't do it. They don't want anything to get out. So they just hold it up forever, and it's the Trump administration. It's like, well, just general incompetence, or is it malfeasance? And usually it's a, some kind of sweet spot where they both are true. But he did have new revelations about China from what I've you know seen in, in, on social media. But you're right. He is a disgraceful patriot. He's just not a patriot, and patriotism is something I still believe in. You should care about this system of government. And what I hope is that if he has to forfeit all the money under a Biden administration, they take that money and use it for humanitarian aid in Iran so they can get the Iran deal back, which is, you know, the loss of that has been a foreign policy nightmare.
2: I think we hit a deep-rooted thing that problem I have with John Bolton, which is mustache envy because, you know, I've been trying to grow this thing for six years. I look like John Waters drank chocolate milk. Um, But, yeah, I mean, John Bolton, all these guys, you know, Richard Barr, they need to – they deserve to be on the trash heap of history.
0: Now just sit back and relax as the boys explain to you the sportsification of the news media today.
3: Welcome back, boomers and others. We are here – Today, to talk about how the way we talk and consume media in terms of politics and sports have become exactly the same. So, Jerry Zucker is the president of CNN. He was hired away from NBC, where he shepherded such shows as The Apprentice. I guess The Apprentice. Once you say The Apprentice, you don't need to say anything else. And Truth. Um, he said quote, the idea that politics is sports is undeniable. And we understood it and approached it that way. I think this has incredible implications for us as a country. And that's kind of what we're here to talk about today, because the intersection of sports and politics, we often talk about the way that politics intrudes on sports. Here, I think, is a place where sports is intruding on politics. So, Zach, Where are
2: you on this topic? Well, I think, you know, I don't know if I'm—I work in politics. I have a bachelor's in political science. I don't know if I am somewhat uniquely uh, able to talk about this or if I'm an elitist for talking about it, but probably a combination of both. I think that we have seen a rise in coverage, and a lot of it is the 24-hour coverage of media, but a lot of it comes from the way talk show hosts talk, the way we see on ESPN— uh, and especially when we saw a rise on shows like on CNN,
1: you can't in twenty twenty even in this like this COVID world, there is somehow between C- the the CNN, MSNBC, Fox News wing and the ESPN, Fox Sports One wing, there's more crossover of of topics of conversation than there's ever been. You have. And they've been doing this for the better part of the last decade, ESPN and Fox, namely, where they frame their morning talk shows, basically their non-live sports programming, their non-news, their non-sports center programming. They just, it's basically from the time you wake up till about middle after, mid-afternoon into the evening. It's all just kind of, it's, it's embrace debate. We're going to debate sports topics. Now, where does that start for, and, and you guys could probably better inform me on this. I think of, when I think of, like, political debates, namely presidential debates, I mean, I think, uh, like, 1960, I think, like, the you know, Kennedy and Nixon, and it's like, oh, if you listen on the radio, you thought Nixon won, but if you see it on TV, you see him sweating, you think Kennedy won, this and that, whatever. But, like, presidential debates for at least the last half century plus have, I mean, these are these huge television events, you know. And it and it's trickled down, it eventually trickles into into television, and you think of like I think the earliest would be like like a William Buckley and Gore Vidal, and then and that bleeds into you know left and right annoying. debating, and then you and that leads to the McLaughlin Group on on I believe PBS where it's you've got you know two guys on the right, two guys on the left, and they're debating, uh, crossfire on CNN later at the turn of uh, in the nineties um, same same idea conservatives and liberals debating the days. Debating the day's events, much like if you watch First Take on ESPN with Max Kellerman and Stephen A. Smith, if you watch the fucking garbage with Skip Bayless and um, Shannon Sharp on Fox, you know, it's just guys debating sports topics. It's become very, it's a very blurred line.
2: Andrew, you touched on something that I, there's a lot to unpack here, and and I want to start uh, kind of in a little more focused area, which is debates. And I think talking about the Kennedy-Nixon debate is a perfect example the people who listened to the debate on the radio overwhelmingly thought Nixon won. The people who watched it on TV overwhelmingly thought Kennedy won. That kind of happened for about 20, 30 years, it, it, but it got worse with the rise of 24-hour news coverage and the ways of, of it kind of becoming uh, uh, sportified, to, to, to use a term that in a word that doesn't exist. Before a, a football game, before NFL Sunday, there's an hour-and-a-half, two-hour pregame show on ESPN that talks all about everything we're going to see today, the team's going off head-to-head, my team versus your team, your team versus my team. You watch a debate, and and, and let's go to recent, the the Hillary and and, and Trump debate. Two hours, hour and a half, three hours before, all-day coverage on MSNBC, CNN, Fox News about what the debate is, who's going to win, what points are they going to score. And at the end of the debate, you know, I I think a lot about the debate of of Hillary and, and Donald Trump when Donald Trump was like pacing around uh, behind Hillary like a baboon, and <laughs> Hillary was trying to make a point, and and the, at the next day or at the end of it, no one talked. No one talked about what they were talking about. No one talked about the policies they were debating. No one talked about what they were saying that was going to impact how they would be president. They were talking about well, Donald Trump walking around behind Hillary. What sign does that show? Who wins? Who scored the most points? Okay. Donald won on that one based on visual. Point for Donald. And it becomes this very, like, ESPN-style way of looking at policies. And in sports, it is a very black and white. This team did this. This team did this. Your team did this. My team did this. In politics, it is a nuanced, complex, gray area. And they cover it as if it's black and white. So, Chris Clizza,
3: who Mm -hmm. is the worst... Probably the most extreme example of this in any major newspaper, he works for the Washington Post and CNN. I don't know if he still works for the Washington Post, but he used to work for the Washington Post. So I looked at the February 8th comments he had about the debate. February 8th, by the way, when I mention these things, is going to seem like it's an epoch ago, the way that people talked about serfs and... uh, (laughs) But... He had the winners, Buttigieg, because, quote, Buttigieg was in control most of the night he, and maintained momentum. He talked about Sanders, because very little in this debate will peel support away from him. He talked about Mike Bloomberg as a winner, because it said he was mentioned, which means it, he matters, which is the first step toward a plausible path to the nomination. The losers were Biden, because he needed something to change his trajectory. And and he not sure he got it. Sounds like Patrick Mahomes and coverage. War, and Warren, he was in, unwilling to draw anything but the most tepid contrast between yourself and the two frontmen. And also, by the way, the lighting, because you could see their faces but not their hands. That kind of coverage of politics reinforces the belief that there is nothing that's going on in that stage that has anything to do with the lives of the people who are watching it. The New York Times, and I will admit, I subscribe to both the Washington Post and New York Times. I, I, I pay money every month for them, $25 combined, because I think it's important to have good journalism, and I've never canceled, despite the fact I'm often tempted to by the Times.
2: David, Bro- had, David Brooks hasn't put you over the edge yet. They
3: had 16 <laughs> people
2: Brett <Stephens>. grading the <laughs> debate on a 1 to 10 scale.
3: 16 people. They did not have 16 people cover anything other than this ever like 16 people so brett stevens was on the panel Ugh.
2: like uh, i just i dislike brett stevens on uh, new york times play barry weiss was probably yeah, on the I, panel
3: I, I no, she was not that would have required work um <laughs> was okay. but i expect brett stevens to be the terrible right-wing voice but they also had Literally the worst writer I've ever read in my life, Maureen Dowd, on it, and
2: the ultimate access journalist, right?
3: The ultimate access <laughs> journalist, because the, because the Adam Schefter
2: of political news. Because
3: she, because she and and uh, uh, Ivanka get get petties together, mm-hmm. she has unlimited access. That strikes me as the very worst because it brings out what somebody in twenty fifteen wrote. On one hand, sports metaphors can be seen as a way to keep politics interesting and easier to grasp, but it makes it only a game. And I think that's really where the, the problem with this lies is it's, it has no more stakes to it than, at best, a Nuggets-Memphis game to see who finishes, who makes the playoffs. To,
1: to this point, if I'm running, if I'm running a, a, a very active, busy sports, sports book in Nevada, in Jersey anywhere if i'm running if i'm running a sports book and my top handicapper gave an assessment of he gave me a collection of like futures bets um whatever and it was the caliber of silliza's sort of handicapping of that democratic debate <laughs> your motherfucker get out of here you motherfucking fired like get out get out of here that is cuz clearly <laughs> Like what, he doesn't. he Clearly, he doesn't know what he look. You know, you know you, poor, you, poor you, scores you, for Biden. Poor scores for Warren. It's not. I mean, you know,
2: who who were two of the last. It's not fucking fantasy sports. Chris.
1: Like exactly. Like get the fuck. If, if this is how you want to cover it, and you want to be fucking dead wrong with how it comes out, pund- smell you later. Like get pund- out.
3: Pundits have no zero responsibility for previous decisions.
2: And we know this because David Frum keeps talking about foreign policy. Like, look <laughs> so like- at his record. Yeah, th- <laughs> thank Jesus. you, David. We're still in the fucking Iraq because yeah, of you. Right, like, yeah. you know, when a sports journalist gets it wrong, you, you know, Patrick Mahomes doesn't go have to live in Fallujah for fifteen years. <laughs> there's no, yeah, there's no actual like- consequences. <laughs> right. Like, it, it, it's just it, oh, you got it wrong. Like, it. It. I want to talk a little bit about the debate shows, but Andrew talked about, a little bit uh, about like you look at Crossfire. The line between Crossfire and PTI is a straight fucking line that, hey, instead of actually debating nuances of policy, and listen, this is not, I am not one of those people that's like, let's go back to the Walter Cronkite, you get news at 6 p.m. and you have the trusted voice. That's not the world we live in. That is not coming back. Anyone who thinks that's coming back is not living in reality. Also, I lived in it, and it sucked. There were three gatekeepers. It, not, exactly. Yeah, it, yeah. Like, on
3: some level, there's, it's good to have more gatekeepers. And if you wanted to know policy, if you want to know policy today, you can know policy. We all have Twitter feeds. I bet you we are very well informed on policy because we follow people who we trust on all kinds of things. That did not exist 25 years ago. The problem is the vast majority of Americans don't consume media that way. You know, and again, this is not, this is off the sports topic. This isn't new. This is the way politics had always been covered, very
2: partisan. It's just now it's become sports. I want to make a point about this, that I think that this is, we've talked about this, we talked about this last week, with much like with Donald Trump, it's like you have an infection in your arm and instead of treating it, you lose your arm. I think much like a lot of things, what Donald Trump did is just simply exemplify and amplify how awful this is because this is someone that daily tweets out awful things you watch sports center and sports center's on for 9 hours they're covering breaking news this thing happened they can do this thing happen you flip over to fox news it's the same fucking thing you flip over to cnn it's the same fucking thing they're all look the same every visual looks the same they are covering it exactly the same they are they 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 have part the interruption did and, and around the horned it and first taked it down to, okay, we're going to have a very serious policy debate about what is going on in Portland and like federal overreach, and we're going to give everyone two minutes to make their point. At the end, someone wins and someone and, doesn't. And by the way, no
3: one on PTI says, well, you know, Seth Curry is only shooting 34% from three. And so I don't think he's that good. They don't have to be cross-checked on that. But on CNN in Fox, it's viewed as out of not Fox so much. CNN, NBC, it's viewed as out of bounds to say that fact is inaccurate. Like it's not
2: a fact; you're just wrong. He, he, the, hold on, here's try to push back on sure. that point a little bit. Is that CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, when Donald Trump was holding his speeches in 2016, did not fact check a single thing? Oh no, we're agreeing. Because, yeah, because but, you can get away with it on, on, on but, news media. But, but this is where it's wrong. Is you shouldn't be able to get away with no. it. No. The
3: illusion of objectivity should not be important more important than the conveying of information. But they have decided it is. And part of that is because they're having a model in which Skip Bayless acts way better than Kylie McEnany. And by the way, you know where she's – is that – is that how you pronounce your last name? McEnany. You, you, you nailed it. That, yeah, you, oh, McEnany, you killed me. Right. That one you nailed. Here we go. Uh, I'll have to undo it now. Well, you know how to <laughs> pronounce Irish <laughs> name.
2: Yeah, if I can't do the
3: Irish, if I can't you can't do, do the
2: Irish names, you're fucked.
3: But, you got to make but,
0: me work a little bit here. But you, know how, <laughs> but you
3: know how Kylie McEnany got her job? Because CNN paid her to be a surrogate for Trump. And you know why they paid her to be a surrogate for Trump? Because people wouldn't do it for free. So in this weird-ass environment, where they're maintaining the illusion of objectivity, that when people come on for the Biden campaign, they're free. But you have to pay the Trump people because they're not going to, like, there's only a couple dead-enders that will do this work. And McEnany turned this into a White House job, and CNN has learned nothing from this. Nothing. Morning Joe maybe has had a three-minute contemplation about, well, maybe we shouldn't have had him on every single morning, but even then, probably not.
1: Everything, and this is, it's been at least a two-decade downward slope here, everything is dumbed the fuck down. If you're watching Around the Horn, and pardon the interruption, and, all, and, the, and the various morning shows, the first takes, this and that, and you, are a, you're a, you consider yourself a savvy, a sharp, whatever, NFL fan, NBA fan, baseball fan, whatever, whatever your, whatever your fucking passion is, you're a big fan, and, and you're and you're watching that to uh, kind of instruct and inform your takes. You're fucked. You're not getting shit out of that. Well, if you're watching, if you're watching, let's say Meet the Press or Face the Nation on Sunday morning, and you get you get the roundtable segment. You know they have the guests and they have the roundtable, round table and like Meet the Press. You got Hugh Hewitt is going to talk for five minutes, excusing the latest Trump bullshit. There's going to be somebody on both sides on every show just talking in very rudimentary, broad strokes, quickly about nuanced, like you've said, topics that need more attention. But these are the shows that so many people, you know, the viewership for Meet the Press is still huge. The viewership for, like, even the, the, the primetime shows. And they don't, if this is where you're getting your information, then you're not going deep enough if you want to consider yourself to be savvy, informed, sharp sports, politics, or otherwise. And there's a weird parallel
2: between how both sides have have really engaged in this. Well, I think it, it's, you know, and I brought this up, so, so maybe I don't want the discussion to get lost in this, but there is a sense of team that I want to talk about, the, the team aspect of it, which is the way you cover sports journalism. If you're in a team, you support the Jets. The Jets are playing the Patriots. They're going to cover the Jets. They're going to cover the Pats, and then you fight it out. But in politics, like, I think back to uh, Obamacare. And does anyone remember, you know, I'm sure you guys remember the Obamacare debate. The Obamacare debate was not discussed in a nuanced policy of how this is a government mandate to, pri- to, to collect private insurance, to uh, insure yourself with private insurance. It was not covered as a debate that will increase coverage for people. It was, a, it was pushed as a debate of Barack Obama versus the Tea Party. Barack Obama versus this conservative right wing. Barack the, the debt ceiling debate, Barack Obama versus John Boehner. Things like the debt ceiling, things like Obamacare. These are complex, thousand-page bills that it was whittled down to there are going to be death panels killing your grandma instead of, like, the way that they did of, of two minute. And you cannot, a lot of politics, you cannot whittle down to two-minute things. Like, the politics of it... The politics of who's up and who's down, who's good and who's bad, that's a different thing. When it comes to debating policy, it is insane to limit policy to a way of a two-minute debate of who wins and who loses. Uh, it's,
3: at some level, I spend a lot of my professional life trying to talk to people about how legislative policy affects them and how, although they identify with one party, that party is pushing for things that will cut their pensions in half and hurt their health care and take away their raises. And so I end up with a lot of, you know, for me in Connecticut, a lot of Lamont is a Democratic governor and Trump voters. So I just end Same up here. with that. Same here. Because politics is nuanced. And it is hard. The one place I would argue that the conversion of politics and sports has been helpful is in... The evaluation of polls and the evaluation of where we are and I would say this because you know Bill James made the point that he did not increase the way people look at statistics all he did was make it more nuanced about how they looked at statistics the fact that Al Oliver drove in 107 runs every year was less impressive when you realized that the average player would have driven in 111. Like, you know, and and Bill James, due credit, did this before computers. He did this before access to box scores. He did this at a time when no one else was doing it, and he made us think again. A Bill James acolyte is Nate Silver, you know, who was taking up uh, economics at at the University of Chicago. He ended up with a master's from uh, the – london school of economics in both political science and economics and he ended up running baseball prospectus for for eight years i think because he developed the pakoda algorithm i just want to stop for a second here this is one of my detours he named it after bill pakoda because he thought bill pakoda was the most average major leaguer ever I remember Bill Picota. He was the most average major leaguer ever. He was the Mendoza line of politics. Well, no, no, no. Bill Picota was, he played second, short, and third, Absolutely. but rarely second, short. Like he mostly played second and third for a bunch of teams. He is a lifetime 249 hitter, but his on base percentage was about 320. He was decent defensively. He is incredibly average. And so they backronymed his name into the algorithm. But anyway, Like, we followed polls way back. Like, I followed polls. And before this, and now, you know, he became famous because he hit 99, uh, 101 out of 102, if you count D.C., possible right answers in the presidential elections in in 8 and 12. And that's where, I mean, that's where his legend began. He is also only 42 years old. Have you seen him? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and I'm shocked about that. But, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, like to me, that's an okay way to handle politics and sports because the, the knowledge of both on pure horse race is okay. And what I respect about Nate Silver, is he always says, this has nothing to do with policy.
2: And they should be uh, different people. See, I, I disagree a little and bit. I, and I could I, be wrong there. I disagree a little bit because Nate Silver... Was poll based in twenty sixteen, and all his polls and all his analysis proved wrong, and Donald Trump got elected. He didn't say our algorithm was wrong. He didn't say blah blah. He said, "Oh well, I only gave Hillary a seventy percent chance." So he blah, gave blah. He, he gave a her the bullshit
3: bull- answer. Well, he it was seventy three twenty seven. Everybody else didn't have it that way. So he said, "You know what? I had." He was not incorrect in saying I had the best chance of Trump winning. He was correct in that. Absolutely. What's weird, is that. Whereas we can look at the Cleveland Cavaliers-Golden State Warriors series in the year they won 72 games. What year was that, Andrew?
1: So the 73 games. The 73-game season, that was 15-16.
3: Right. We can look at that and say, okay, you played that series 100 times, they went three. They just happened to hit one of the three. Because Draymond Green has There is a non-zero percent chance he'll kick somebody in the balls. There's a non-zero percent chance it. Defs, ankles will act pre, up. Du-
1: this is pre Durant, too. Right, like right. There's a non-zero
3: percent chance on these things, so we could say you could play it. We don't think of that way with elections. We don't think like, well, this group of people will stay home and this people group of people will go. I'm not sure we're not we're right about that. We just don't think of it that way. We're getting somewhere here,
1: and I'm gonna try to like transition it to. It's one thing for a, for a sports talk show to let's just say, for example, frame a uh like a Bucks Lakers NBA finals in a few months. It's one it's one thing for a dumb talk show to frame that as just a, an explicit referendum on well this series just comes down to a matchup of LeBron versus Giannis, which is fucking dumb. It's dumbing down it's you're if if you're watching this series just think it's just going to be about LeBron and Giannis then you're not watching it from a with any sort of like Any critical, and you don't want to be, you don't want to analyze it, be critical about it. But, and that's fine. That's sports. That's the the theater. That's the theater of entertainment. Politics is not that. Like you said, Zach, if you want to make the original ACA thing, like a referendum on Boehner v. Obama, and cover it like that, that's fucking dangerous. It's not trivial, like covering a basketball series like that. That's fucking dangerous. It's like, well, if you vote this way, you vote this way, you like Boehner his house you like Obama that's fucking dangerous that's it's it's literally discouraging
2: being sort of uninformed like if that's if that's how they're gonna cover it as the battle between those two it's it's uniquely frustrating to have studied this for years and to work in this and to see what you have studied and what you work in devalued to a 30-second conversation about who had the best speech like you look at Trump and Biden we are talking about, there are people being taken off the streets in unmarked vans in Portland right now by federal agents. There, there is a president tear gassing people for a photo op outside a church. And the news is covering it as in, well, how will this affect his polls against Joe Biden? And it's like, at some level, you go, who the fuck cares? Who the fuck cares? Like, at some level, we have moved beyond that. Like, this is not, you know, I'm a Democrat. I've been a Democrat my whole life. I won't be a Democrat very soon, but I've been a Democrat my whole life. And I don't feel like I am on a team. It is not the way I root for the Jets. I don't support Democratic policies the way I support jets, Jets' moves, where, like, basically the Jets make a trade for Jamal Adams. That's awful. And I go well, it wasn't so bad, and figure it out. That's not the way politics should be. Politics should be about ideas and values and discussions. Like, And when you cover it like sports, you end up covering it as if there's a good trade, and you end up covering it like, oh, the DNC is going to have John Kasich speak at their convention. That's like discussing, and then they discuss it as if, well, what if the uh, Red Sox traded for A-Rod? back in the day and it's like this very fucking different things like one of these things doesn't matter and one of these things does because at the end of the day sports is entertainment and politics impacts how we live and how we're going to live in the future and what our day-to-day life is going to be like and to cover it as if those are the same things is devaluing our political process and it makes people get into these corners where it's like, I'm a Democrat, anything the Republican does is wrong, or I'm a Republican, everything the Democrat does is wrong. We see that in the sense of there's no better way, uh, uh, you talk polls, there's no better poll that showed this than when it went into political party confidence in the economy. Under Obama, it was like 70-30 Democrat. Under Trump, it was 70-30 Republican. Nothing fucking changed. But my team was in charge. And that is what we've gotten to.
1: I really can't agree more. I admire, in a lot of ways, the work of the aforementioned Nate Silver. Um, I remember his book, oh, What's the Signal and Noise? I read it, like, three times, cover to cover. And, like, there's a lot of... I like his his backstory of, like, using his, like, quant background to approach poker. And, like, I, we kind of had similar time frames of, like, um, making money playing online poker. And then the games got really tough and much more mathematical. And then even he started losing money, and I also started losing money. So, <laughs> but Silver... There is, a, there is a use, a, a highly instructive use for st- statistics and modeling in politics and in sports that is shared, that is parallel. It is in coverage, it is in, it is in news coverage for coverage of politics and policy to sort of almost in a way take their cue from how sports is covered. Is, de- is fucking deplorable. The it's, it's, it's disgusting because I love sports as so much as anybody, and I want, I would love for more finely crafted, curated sports coverage on, in mainstream media. But you know what? I can find that. I can find that on sort of like the outs, the, not the front page of ESPN.com. I can find that. Politics, you know, a lot of people take their fucking cues from the front page. From Q, from from, from Q, uh, from Q thirty nine Q candidates from the front page, from the six o'clock, seven o'clock, eight o'clock hours on CNN, MSNBC, uh, Fox News, whatever, and like Zach said, the whole tone and tenor of that conversation, it just does our electorate, and our, it
2: just does it, it just does our politics no justice. The Venn diagram of Maureen Dowd's access journalism compared to Adam Schefter's <laughs> access journalism. Or the Venn diagram of how Joe Scarborough covers politics and the Venn diagram of how Trey Wingo covers sports is a fucking circle. It's a circle.
0: Who do you think—I'm so, sorry. Can, who is— Isn't that the definition of a Venn diagram?
2: No, a Venn diagram is two separate circles. Uh,
0: two well, questions.
3: One two, circle. two
2: it's, converging circles.
0: Well, I mean, yes. but it could be one. Oh, no. It's, it's, still it's, overlap. S- it's still a group It's a really good
3: analogy.
1: Who is Scarborough's <laughs> closest contact? Who is Schefter's closest contact in your in your mind? Is there like can you
3: think of somebody that like
2: Roger Goodell and Donald Trump? Is, uh, it, is Scar- it really... Scar- a, no, Tr- Scar- oh, Scarborough's,
3: Scarborough's closest contact is Ivanka. Ivanka. Yeah. Yeah. And I have I have no idea about Schechter. Right. I'm sure there's somebody who's who works. Maybe it's Goodell. The, it might
1: be Goodell. Goodell. Yeah. Real the quick, top.
2: real quick to to lighten this up a bit. Who is the political uh, person that most embodies the Mendoza line? Oh, where you're just Oh, Joe Manchin. Oh,
3: Joe, wait, no, no, like no, I think, no, I, think, no, I, think no, I think that's like the answer. An elected official or like a, no, some, no. a TV personality? A, any, no, any no, of it. Anybody? I, no, it's Joe Manchin. I'm thinking TV because because as somebody who has to, who has to be a Democrat and who doesn't want to see Manchin lose, Manchin is the definition of the Mendoza line, I, including I including Mendoza's on base percentage and slugging percentage. <laughs>
1: I, I, would go, I would go Andrew Cuomo. Also, I was, oh. was going to say his brother because I thought you were going
3: TV.
2: Oh.
1: Per- Chris Cuomo.
2: Yeah, it, Chris Cuomo. Thank you, thank you. The That's TV what guy. Chris Cuomo. TV, I yes. would have
1: gone Chris Cuomo. He's it, it, fine. It, it, He's it, not Andrew fine.
2: Andrew Cuomo is the Andrew Cuomo killed oh. thirty thousand New Yorkers and it, is considered the hero. It, it, Andrew Chris Cuo- is just mediocre, Andrew um, Cuomo
3: is the Dwayne Kuiper line. <laughs> <laughs> so who gets that? <laughs> so one of the reasons that we started this podcast and it did not occur to me until right now is that we are all obviously huge sports fans and we're all obviously very liberal and we understood the hypocrisy of being both and we wanted to talk about that and that's kind of what we talk about but I think one of the things that helped me work through that is this conversation because one of the things we understand about sports is the stakes are way lower that You could trade Nolan Ryan for Jim Fergusi, because you have bad information, and that's not going into Iraq because you think they have weapons of mass destruction. That nobody dies over that. And that you can kind of mislead people about Saman J.P. Ryan's Heisman chances. That's different than misleading people about what the Affordable Care Act does for their health insurance. These things are all very different. And when we treat them like they're all the same, we're just reduced, not as sports fans, but as people who live in this country and root for sports. And I think, that that's, I think that's what this conversation was about. Uh, we will be back next week with the Bill Bradley Collective.
2: Thank you for listening to the Bill Bradley Collective. If you'd like to continue the conversation, please check out our Facebook page at the Bill Bradley Collective.